Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about handmade games, talking about taking matters in your own hands, not worrying about manufacturing in China and all that stuff, but making everything yourself. We're talking to Jackson Pope from over at Eurydice Games. Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited to talk to you. You're a guy that I, I've been following for a long time. Your blog, back when you had Reaver Games, was such uh, just a, a very useful, a pivotal, a helpful tool for me way back, long before I'd even really jumped into game design, long before uh, I was making content and podcasts and all that stuff. And so I really appreciate all the content you put out through your blog, the rise of the fall, the, the the highs and lows and all that good stuff with Reaver Games. Really appreciate you you doing that. Man. I know I've gotten a lot out of it. And I know other people have as well. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. And now you're you're back, and we're going to talk about kind of uh, different things that have happened over your game publishing career. But now you're with Eurydice Games, and you're still making handmade games. Uh, but before we get into the topic, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that good stuff. Uh, my name's Jackson Pope. Um, I started designing board games about. 2002, I guess. Um, I'd previously been um, designing bits of computer games, like tiny bits of like MMORPGs. Um, and you could make a tiny, tiny part of what a, a real game would be because they'd been made by massive teams for working on it for years and years. Um, so I got into board games. I'd been in. I'd played Magic and um, some tabletop war games, things like uh, Games Workshop games, um, and a little bit of things like um, Catan and Carcassonne. And um, I got into board game design because we played a game that literally lasted all weekend. We played for like thirty-six hours, and uh, it was a crazy long game. And two-thirds of the way through, some crazy random thing happened, and the guy who was winning was suddenly losing, and it was just like, this is madness. I don't have 36 hours to spend playing a single board game. Um, I'm, I must be able to make a game that would be a similar sort of experience, but playable in a sensible amount of time. So that was my the sort of design ethos of my first game, Border Reavers. It's like, make a, a light civilization war game that you can play in less than 36 hours. Um, and it ended up being somewhere between 20 and, I guess, 90 minutes, depending upon the number of players. So a little bit less than 36 hours. Huh? Ever so slightly less, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I worked on that for a couple of years. Um, I got to the point where I thought it was pretty much a finished game, and then it went in a box on a shelf. And then we moved house, and we moved away from where we'd been living. So we moved 100 miles south to York. Um, and the the game languished in a box on the shelf for 18 months. And then I thought, no, no, I, I've made this game. I, I want to do something with it. Um, so I went along to the local board games club. Um, I set up a blind playtesting evening with a load of strangers um, from the board games club. Um, they played the game. Um, they enjoyed it. Several of them wanted to buy a copy. Um, so I started looking into how to make it. And at the time uh, when we, well, probably five or ten years before that um we'd known a couple of guys who'd who designed a board game it was like um it was a 
I guess a, a sort of fairly mass market game. Uh, it's quite good actually, but um, it was sort of quite. I don't know how to describe it. It was it wasn't mass market themed, but it was a mass market game if that makes sense. Yeah. And they'd made thousands and thousands of copies, and they had thousands and thousands of copies in their small apartment. <laughs> um, I, I I can't end up in this state. I'm I've got a one bedroom apartment tiny tiny little thing it's like no I, I can't do that so I, I can't afford to make I can't afford to make thousands of copies of games and I certainly can't afford to have thousands of copies of games cluttering up my tiny apartment um, so I wondered if it would be possible to do a small run of the game um, and so I looked into it and I priced up buying all the bits myself and then if I made the game myself so if I literally cut it out and put it together um, I could make a hundred um, and the cost of each game would be about £12.50, and I was going to sell them for £25. So if I sold half of them, I was rel- relatively certain I could sell probably 25 of them. And So 20, 25 was in the bag. I thought 50 was a bit of a stretch. Um, but if I sold 50, I'd break even. And if I sold all 100, I'd make some profit, and I'd have some money left to invest in something else. Um, and so for a year, I did that, and each game took me three hours to, to make and the boxes were a nightmare and um it, the game had 72 tiles that were made out of two millimeter thick gray board that i was cutting out by hand with a craft knife and a steel ruler um so i had to take bits of um paper and glue them onto the gray board on either side making sure that the registration was right so that they lined up and then cut out all these tiles and oh god it was awful um and each game took me three hours and i was plugging away at it but i managed to make all 100 copies and sell all 100 copies within a year um and during that year somebody else sent me a game um a guy called yehuda billinger who um used to be part of purple porn and had his own um jer games i think it was called blog um about the games group that he went to in uh jerusalem um or was it tel aviv i can't remember can't remember exactly where it was, but he, he was gaming in Israel. Um, and he sent me a game design. It was a really neat little, um, fairly light auction game. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of the theme, which was um, collecting different colored candles to light a Jewish uh, menorah. Um, so I pitched a slight retheme of the game to be um, collecting different body parts to build Frankenstein's monster. Um, and <laughs> completely surprised me when he said, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, and so... I made, um, so that saw life as it's alive. And again, that was a handmade run. So I made 300 games by hand. And this was much, much easier. So there was no tiles. It was um, it was all thin card that I was cutting out and smaller boxes and just some wooden pieces to count and things. Um, I made 300 of those and I sold all 300 within the year. So this was all going great at this point. Um, and then um, we just bought a, a small flat um, and... I developed multiple sclerosis, um, and which sounds terrible and was actually quite bad at the time. But um, <laughs> there was a silver lining in that my uh, the life insurance we'd bought to cover the mortgage should one of us die also covered critical illnesses, including multiple sclerosis. So I was in the strange position of being able to spend my own life insurance <laughs> money without having to pretend to be dead. Um, so... Uh, we paid off most of the mortgage. Um, we invested a chunk of it in Reva Games. Um, we put some aside into savings so that I could live off it 
while Reva Games wasn't earning enough money for me to take any salary from it. So for the next two years, I ran Reva Games as a, I'm doing air quotes here, but you can't see it, a professional manufacturing company. So it had one employee who was me who wasn't taking any salary. Um, and we manufactured three games and those games were professionally manufactured by factories. Um, in the thousands, I made another 3000 copies of It's Alive, 2000 copies of Carpe Astra, which I co-designed with Ted Cheatham, who designed, I'm gonna say Wind River, I think, um, and 3000 copies of Sumeria by Dirk Leakins. And um, oh, so that, started i went professional i'm gonna say a month a month and a half before the big stock market crash in 2009 so that was perfect timing um and obviously there was no kickstarter back then or at least kickstarter wasn't available to uk projects back then um so the company was selling games it was technically profitable but i wasn't making any money for myself i was eating my life savings at a um the savings we'd put aside at a disturbing rate and it clearly wasn't really going anywhere so uh, in 2011 after six years um i shut reva games down i sold the last of my stock which was i think it was about two and a half thousand copies um to liquidators um who sold them to scottish pound shops so I'll give you an idea of how much money i made on those um I made enough money to pay off all my um, all my debts. So I paid off the last of my bank loan that I got to fund Carpe Astra. Um, uh, paid off all of that. Um, and there was a small amount of money left in the company, which was a lot less than I'd invested in the first place. So it was a, a an unmitigated disaster in financial terms. Um, but it was great fun. It was a really interesting experience. I learned an awful lot doing it. Um, and life insurance, so mustn't grumble. Um, so then obviously uh, 2011 rolled around, I just shut my company down. I was feeling a bit down about the whole thing. I, I was obviously woefully incapable of running a board games publishing company. Um, and I was never gonna do board game design again. That was crazy, it never worked. So about three months later, we, my wife and I were driving home from Bristol, which is, we'd moved back to Newcastle at this point. So it's a 300 mile drive from where all our families live. Um, and I was chatting to my wife about uh, Race for the Galaxy, which is one of our favorite games. And um, I had an idea for another game. So I started designing games again. So. Um, for the last seven you took a three-month break you know that's something yeah, i had some time off um so the last <laughs> seven years um i've been designing board games again um i had no intention of getting into it into publishing again um so i was i was just designing this game which is still theoretically in development um although i haven't done anything on it for a while now for probably a year and a half two years um, in 2013, I took part in uh, National Game Design Month, so Nagademon, I think it's known as. Um, and there was, there was a little card game idea that I'd had, originally had as an idea to um, make as like a conference giveaway for my employer. Um, and it started out being a sort of fairly sensible game about um, scientific investigations and trying to cure diseases um, then it became half serious and half silly and it became utterly silly and that ended up at zombology which was a three to eight player card game of scientists again you can't see my air quotes um, 
versus the zombie apocalypse. So they're trying to cure the zombie apocalypse using um, alternative medicine, such as homeopathy and healing crystals and aromatherapy. Um, and that's a semi-cooperative game. So it, uh, the idea is that you can't win the game playing by yourself. You have to, you have to work together. Um, but you're not, it, unlike a, a co-op game like Pandemic or something like that, um, you're not all in it together. You're trying to be the winner or one of the winners. And it's possible that there are two or more winners. And in theory, it's possible that every single person wins. Um, but you're, at, you're definitely in it for yourself. Um, so you're, you're, um, you're trying to cure the zombie plague. You've only, it's a very short game. It's like a 10-minute game. Um, and you're working together. You're trying to build on each other's research. But what you want, absolutely want to make sure is that your research is seen to be winning. Um, so the idea is that whoever, if a cure is found, and it's possible that a cure isn't found and everyone loses like in a, a co-op game, uh, if, a, if a cure is found, then whoever has significantly significantly contributed to that cure is considered one of the winners. So if, if your contribution to that particular cure is enough, then you're one of the winners. And if it isn't, you aren't. Um, with semi-co-op games, there's a clear sort of strategy, which is first, I want to be a winner. Secondly, I want everybody to die. Thirdly, I want somebody else to win, but me not be a winner. Um, so that's the way you play. And, and if you're playing like an hour and a half long game and somebody kills everyone in the 98th minute, then you're going to be really, really annoyed. But if it's an eight minute game and somebody kills you in the seventh minute, then it it's it's frustrating but it's more silly than frustrating um so it's quite a light-hearted fast and uh quick game it's got a bit more meat to it than you than your typical um sort of 10 minute filler so it's a bit more complicated than something like six nymphed or something like that or holster guy so I, I designed that during nagademon um i worked on it for another year and at the end of that year uh, for the next year's Nagademon, I made 30 copies for a bunch of friends and people who'd helped me design it and took part in Nagademon's playtesting and things like that. Um, over the next couple of years, I did a bit more work on that. And people kept asking me, oh, can I get a copy of that? And it's like, well, not really. Um, so then, <laughs> then I put it up on drive through cards um, and I got a grand total of three people who bought it from drive through cards. Thank you, those three people. And people were still asking. So I'd be playing it every now and again at local games clubs and things. And people say, oh, can I get a copy? And I was like, well, you can, but it's $12 plus another $20 shipping from the US. Uh, so it's going to cost you about 24 quid. And it's like, just nobody's interested in that. It's like a 10, 12 quid game. Um, and so I thought, well, I keep getting people asking for it. So I started building up a, a mailing list of people who'd asked for it. And then I thought, oh. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it again. I didn't learn anything the first time. I'm like an idiot. I'm going to do it again. Couldn't stay um, away. Huh? Some people never learn. So, so last year, um, I set up a second board game publishing company. Um, and, I, and I wanted to go back to handcrafting the games. There's, there's something it's like it's like a Zen thing. So you have to concentrate because otherwise you'll mess it up. Um, and it's it, using your hands and you've got to focus on getting it right but it's not an incredibly um taxing mentally thing so you so you can sort of you get into a bit of a flow state and you're just sort of, you're crafting away and 
focusing but not concentrating if that makes any sense and so i i really enjoy doing it um of course perfect time again so the, the first time i started doing this um was just before the 2009 financial crash this time it's like what we just about to have our second child what's a good thing to do when you're getting no sleep and you have a, a baby handcrafting games and you're eating stuff. <laughs> obviously <laughs> um so i've spent the last year and a half um desperately wishing for a good night's sleep um it turns out my second daughter is just as bad a sleeper as my first daughter was um she's brilliant during the day awful at night um so i get home from work i've done a full day's work i do all my all my parenting um and then i've got like an hour or something before i need to go to bed because i need to get some sleep before i inevitably get woken up several times during the night um so probably the biggest mistake about handcrafting games is just where do you find the time um but I really enjoy doing it. So, so I, I love the actual crafting of the games and I, I'm, I can look at a, a finished game and it's, it's not a professionally manufactured game and you'll look at it and you can tell it's not a professionally manufactured game, but it's surprisingly close, I think. Um, so I, I'm, I'm genuinely quite proud of the, the, sort of the quality that I can make by hand. So it's nice to look at the finished product and and be proud of it like that yeah very cool and i can see how this is almost like like i've got a friend his grandfather was a master craftsman he loved woodworking he made these amazing clocks and, and cabinets like all this stuff and you could see that he would kind of get in that same zone he'd come home from work he'd have an hour or two he'd go into his his wood shop and he would just make stuff right because he loved doing it and it like he never really even thought about like selling stuff and he made these just beautiful amazing uh, furniture and all this really cool stuff but he, he just loved the the making of and i think if anybody's ever going to get into the handcrafted side of things like you're saying you have to love the the crafting side of it. if you don't like that you're, you're gonna you're gonna burn out really really quick and, and that actually explains so my first question was, was actually why like why would somebody want to do this but i think you just answered really really well it's you, you you have to enjoy it you have to be you know part of that that process so i think the reason why i did it in the first place was i wanted it was like an exploratory thing can i make a small number of games without losing yeah. money um so there's economies of scale. The more games you make, the cheaper they get per game. So if you make 10,000 games, each game costs you a lot less than if you make 1,000 games. And each game costs you orders of magnitude less than if you make 10 games. So if you make, making 10 games is fantastically expensive per game, but making 1,000 games is much, much cheaper per game, although more expensive in total. Um, so I wanted to work out whether it was possible to do a very small number of games, see if there was a market for the game, um, see if I could sell them without committing a vast amount of money. So when I started Builder Evers, I had no idea whether it was even possible to do this. I had no no idea at all. I didn't know anyone else who'd done anything similar or any of that. Um, this time round, Zombology is a bit of a niche game. So it's a filler, but it's quite a heavy filler. Um, it's zombies. It's also homeopathy and healing crystals. Uh, it's semi-cooperative. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's like a confluence of things that make it a bit niche. So it is the most niche of niche things. So it's not the sort of game that you could turn around to somebody and say, oh, I'm going to make 10,000 of these and they'll sell all over the world and it'd be the next pandemic or Catan. It's not that game. It's 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 a fun game. It, it's a love. People enjoy playing it. People play it, go, wow, you designed that. And 
yeah, I'll buy one of those for a tenner, definitely. Um, but it's it's not got mass market appeal. So I can make 200 by hand. I'm two thirds of the way through making 200 by hand. Um, and I'm reasonably confident I'll be able to sell all 200 of those. Um, current stock levels is minus seven, I think. <laughs> Good problem to have. Um, so I've had no... Yeah, I've had an order for seven for nine games, and I've got two at home, um, which would be fine. I'd just spend a couple of evenings making some more games, but I'm in the middle of a Kickstarter at the moment, so I don't have a huge amount of free time around the, the my job and my family duties. Um, so I've got to get around to doing that at some point. Yeah, um, yeah. So it, it's it's proper niche. So small smaller order of business um so yeah it's a combination of gauging the market or knowing that the market is very small and really enjoying doing it yeah definitely now let's let's continue down this path let's talk about more advantages so you talked about you know if you don't if you have a game that's not going to sell ten thousand, well this might be a good way to go to hand make them that might be an advantage of this what are some of the other advantages of hand making your own games as with like self-publishing or kickstarting or anything like that you're completely in control of everything um so you have editorial control over everything which is both a good thing and a bad thing obviously it's great that um it's your baby and you can make it exactly the way you want it to be but sometimes editorial control from somebody slightly further from the project can be a very good thing um so that's a benefit um the cost investment up front so in both my companies i invested a thousand pounds um which is a decent chunk of money but it's not fifteen thousand or twenty thousand or sixty thousand which is what you might end up paying to make a, a reasonably small run of um a game professionally manufactured um and because I'm handcrafting them, and so and essentially the labor is free. The cost per game is much lower than it would be. So if I wanted to make um, 200 copies of, I mean, you can't get a game made in not in 100 or 200 copies. You don't go to a company in China or you know, a board game manufacturer. They'll say 1,500 or 1,000 is their minimum order quantity. Um, and the reason for that is because the setup costs are so high. Um, so they have to create litho plates for all the printing and the plates cost a lot but the printing's almost free so if you make a thousand copies then the cost per copy's quite low if you make ten thousand copies the cost per copy is very low but if you make 200 copies the cost per copy is ridiculous so i can make a small run uh, it doesn't cost a massive investment the cost per game is still quite small because all the labor's free and free in inverted commas um, and I can do it at, so I can sell it at a price that would be sensible. So, I mean, like Zombology is £10. If you walked into a shop and bought a game like Zombology, you'd pay about £10. So it's, it's, um, it's a sensible price for the game, and I'm still making some money on it, and I'm making a very small print run. And that's pretty much the only way you get all of those things together, except possibly print on demand. Yeah, gotcha. And now let's let's look at that as well. And because you know, people could say, well, why don't just use the game crafter? So why why would someone hand make games as opposed to you know doing print on demand? Um, you'd have to enjoy it for, for a start. <laughs> um, 
So, so I have tried using drive-through cards for Zombology. Um, I sold a grand total of three copies. Um, it was up there for about, I'm going to say, eight or nine months. I didn't really put any effort into promoting it at all. Um, so I think those three copies just happened to come across it on the, the drive-through card site. But there's obviously hundreds of games up on their site. Um, so it's very difficult to get any kind of... Um, you're a small fish in a in a quite a big pond. Um, why wouldn't you go with a game crafter? I I've not tried using the game crafter, but my guess is that if you're ordering a small number of copies from them, the cost per copy is is not cheap enough that you could then sell that game at a sensible retail price and make a profit. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, let's look at the other side. What are the disadvantages of hand-making it? We already talked about time, right? You have to have the time to be able to do it. And maybe, yeah. But what are some of the other disadvantages? Time, 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 and injuries. <laughs> um, the number of times I've cut my own fingertip off is remarkably high. Um, recently, I was giving a seminar in um, at the UK Games Expo in June, and I was giving a seminar on handcrafting games. And uh, I'm stood up at the front there, and I uh, laughingly say to the audience, do we have a first aider in the audience? Because I've got a craft knife here. Guy puts up his hands. I said, right, you, you come and sit at the front down here. And then about a third of the way through my seminar, I'm chatting away with uh, a craft knife in one hand and my other palm. And I just sort of bring my hands together and stab myself in the palm with a craft knife. <laughs> it was one of those ones with snap off blades. And I'd snapped off uh -huh. a blade before I came down because I wanted it to be really sharp for the demo. So I would get nice clean cuts. So I, so I essentially just stabbed myself in the palm with a really sharp craft knife. Um, thankfully it didn't bleed too much and I didn't need medical attention, but it's the kind of thing that it's, it's a definite disadvantage. I've, I've skimmed the top off my finger a number of times. I've nicked a chunk out of my fingernail a number of times with craft knife. And I've also stabbed myself in the hand in front of a live audience. Mm. <laughs> gotcha. Now from more, you know, on the financial side or any other, other disadvantages? Um, I think from the financial side, it's, it's mostly benefits. Um, it, it's mostly time and effort. So in theory, um, I'm not, well, I'm not taking any money out of the company. So my time is essentially free, but Zombology, um, I sell it for 10 pounds. It costs, the raw materials cost me just under four pounds. And it takes me 40 minutes to make a copy. So I'm I'm essentially charging about £8 an hour for my my time, um, which is not, which is ever so slightly over UK minimum wage. And so it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort and you can injure yourself. Um, and it, it can be reasonably hard. I mean, those tiles and things were, were an awful chore. Um, they were just really hard work. You had to press down really hard. You're cutting, you get blisters, um, you get RSI in your elbows. It's just, there are definite downsides, but um, I really enjoy doing it because I'm an idiot. So tell me about where you buy supplies. Like where do you get your materials and, and all that good stuff to actually make the cards, make the boxes, make the, the tokens and tiles, all that good, all that good stuff? Um, so most, so all the printing I get done at a local uh, digital print shop. So the sort of people who make um, flyers and business stationery and um, 
that kind of thing. Um, so I get them to print uh, the cards on A3 sheets, which are like twice the size of US letter, I think, more or less. Um, I get them professionally laminated, but then I cut all the cards out by hand from those sheets. Um, the boxes, uh, I get the, I, I buy from them uh, Greyboard, which is, I think the US, they call it chipboard, um, which is the material they make boxes and uh, like punch boards out of. Um, and then for the box labels, I get those. So in the bad old days of Reva Games, um, I used to get them printed onto a sheet of paper that was laminated on. So it was printed on one side, laminated on top of that. So this is professional printer's lamination, not like the, the lamination pockets that you might get from um, doing your own home laminating. So it leaves it with a very, very thin coating of plastic, which gives them a nice finish. Um, it also makes them ever so slightly water resistant and resistant to um, like getting um, stains on them if you've got like sticky hands or whatever. Um, so I used to do that and then I would literally paint the back of that piece of paper with uh, watered down PVA glue and glue it onto the boxes. That is a terrible, terrible idea. Whatever you do, don't do that. Um, I now get them to print onto vinyl labels, uh, which has been laminated on the, the print side. And I just peel the backing paper off and stick it onto the box. And it's so much easier. Um, so I can heartily re recommend that. Um, so that's all the all the printing is done by them. Um, rule books, um, cards, which I cut out myself, box labels, which I cut out and stick onto the boxes that I've made myself from the gray board. Um, and then all the sort of wooden pieces and plastic bits and that kind of stuff is usually from Spiel material in Germany. Um, so they, they're a company that sells like all the wooden pieces that you'd get in your typical Euro game. Um, you can choose the colors you want, you can choose the pieces you want, and they will just, they'll do small orders. You can order like three um, octagonal prisms or something, or you can order like a thousand games worth. Um, so they, they will do a range of different order sizes. Um, and then things like plastic things um, and dice and things like that I get from, um, there's a company called Plastics for Games in the UK, um, which I've used in the past for plastic bits for the games. Yeah, awesome. And actually, you just reminded me of another advantage that we didn't talk about, but uh, is when you're making games by hand and small print runs, if you have a mistake in the rule book or on the card or a tile or something like that, it is much easier to change than if you had printed, you know, 2,000 or 10,000 games. So this is another advantage where you can kind of change things on the fly. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is, it's much easier on, on this sort of scale. Um, and of course, obviously, because you're making them by hand. Um, so if, I mean, if you go and buy 2,000 games, then you've got to store 2,000 games somewhere. Um, and games these days usually come in boxes that are like, 80% air um, so they're big boxes and you've got 2,000 big boxes takes up a fantastic amount of room um, the in the UK and and Europe in general but not so much in the US but houses are a lot smaller in the UK than they are in the US um, and so enough space to store 2,000 massive boxes is really <laughs> at a premium whereas handmade games you've got the raw materials which take up far far less room Two, 200 boxes worth of cardboard takes up a very small amount of space until you actually make them into games um, when they take up 
the same amount of space as if you'd bought them in in large volumes but i've usually only got five to ten games in stock at home that are finished and ready to sell and the rest of them are in their component pieces which take up very little space that's another advantage which is particularly important when i lived in a one-bedroom flat and i was trying to make 100 games (laughs) yeah definitely all right so let's talk about design challenges so if you know you're going to hand make the game you know it's not going to go off to china and be printed and manufactured and all that traditionally what are the design challenges you've run into thinking okay i really want to add this component but i don't know that i can get access to it or maybe it's not cost effective or how many hours is that going to take to add these extra tiles or extra cards so tell me about the challenges that uh, you've you've run into um so so certain things are ruled out straight away you're not going to have any um glorious miniatures so (laughs) um the things that do particularly well on kickstarter with 200 amazing looking miniatures um can't do that now have you looked into 3d printing though have you thought about like even if you're going to just do one or two miniatures have you thought about the 3d printing route uh 3d printing would probably work but it's very slow from what I've heard. Um, no, that's fair. I've, I've not tried to do it, but if you wanted to make 200 games with a few miniatures in them, then I think that's a long time of printing time. Um, although the printers, I don't think, are actually that expensive. So um, the game we're kickstarting at the moment, the reason we've gone to Kickstarter is because we need a laser cutter to make it, and they are very expensive. Yeah. So um, we we have to get enough backers to fund the raw materials to handcraft the games plus a laser cutter to laser cut the games um, because the the pieces are laser cut out of acrylic and acrylic's expensive and laser cutting is staggeringly expensive yeah. and a laser cutter itself is also very expensive um, so normally I self-fund my games um, but for this one we've had to go to Kickstarter because it's the only way we can get it funded uh, other things that are very difficult to make if you're handcrafting games um, pieces un- unusually shaped wooden pieces so all of those are the nice if it's a standard maple that you can buy um, you can probably get it from Spieler material if it's an unusual p- shaped piece you can't um, if you want to have some interesting shaped punch board tokens you can't um, I've done square tiles I've done triangular tiles um, but anything more interesting than that would be a real nightmare to do by hand, cutting it out with a craft knife. Um, you would pretty much need a punch. Um, you can get punches for round, and I think you can get punches for squares and maybe even hexagons as well. But if you want like um, an, an interesting game-specific shaped punch board piece, then that's something you can't do if you're handcrafting. Cards, they're pretty easy to do. Boxes, rule books, um, player boards out of thin card, that's doable. Wooden pieces, as long as they're fairly generic, that, that they're pretty straightforward. Um, but yeah, anything a bit more bespoke is the sort of stuff that you're going to struggle to make handcrafting. Yeah, gotcha. So do you have any any moments that you can look back on and go, okay, I was going to put this in my game and then I realized that it was not going to work to handcraft? Have you got like specific examples? I guess the nearest thing I can think of is the very first game I did, um, Border Reavers. My my personal prototype for a long time had um, hand sculpted Fimo pieces. So so you were um, it's like a a small um, small scale civilization war game. Um, and you build castles and you build towers and you build cities. 
um, and then you have armies that travel around the board. Um, and the towers and cities, uh, so the towers and castles were literally sculpts out of FEMA. They were like, uh, the castle was like an inch high, like an inch cubed, but it had like uh, crenellated, it had like a, um, it had windows in it, it had crenellated battlements, it, it had a um, a staircase up the outside, and the towers was, it was a small round tower that was maybe half an inch high and I'm going to say a quarter of an inch in diameter, uh, again with battlements and windows and a nice little door at the bottom. And so I knew that I wouldn't be able to do anything like that handcrafting, especially in those days there were no 3D printers. Um, so I just ended up with cubes and cylinders, which was a lot less fun, but far more doable. Yeah, gotcha. Now let's talk about tips and tricks. What are some things that you've learned, little nuances of creating games by hand that would help? Let's like let's say I wanted to start doing this myself, and and you could kind of help me not make mistakes that you've made. What are those tips and tricks? Don't whatever you do, do the um, the PVA gluing of the box labels. That's a crazy idea. Definitely go for stickers. Um, get yourself some decent tools. Um, when I started doing Reva games I knew I was going to be cutting um, 50 cards per copy of Border Reavers and each card obviously has four corners so I had what's that 50 times 100 so that's 5,000 times four corners 20,000 corners to cut um, so I looked around and I found I could get a, a corner hole punch a corner punch and you can get them from like craft stores for like a couple of pounds um, and they'll do like a card or two at a time and they're quite hard to, to reg line up perfectly with the corner um, uh, and then I found that I could buy a really quite expensive decent hole uh, corner punch that would do a centimeter depth of whatever you wanted to round the corners of um, and uh, I think when I bought it it was 150 pounds and it's you can still get the same thing although the brand name has changed from the same people and it's now 75 pounds uh, my one has done I've worked out about 180,000 corners um, and it's still going strong I use it for every copy of Zombology I'm making at the moment, um, that was worth its weight in gold. Um, it just lets you round the corners. So you end up with cards that look reasonably professional. I mean, they're, they're not perfect, but they look pretty good. Um, and you can round the corners of a deck of cards so quickly using that. Yeah, gotcha. All right, so buy, buy tools that are going to last, that are going to help you do the job and not be quite as uh, frustrating or difficult. Any other tips and tricks? Try to batch things as much as possible. Um, especially if you're, if you're doing a sort of like a one or 200 copy run, what you don't want to be doing is task switching all the time. You want to batch things up. So you're doing the same thing a number of times and then you switch and do something else a number of times because um, that will make you more efficient. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Now, do you have anybody that helps you? Like, have you been able to find friends or anything like that to kind of make the, uh, the job easier? Uh, so the handcrafting of my games up until now has been entirely me. But the game that I'm, I'm bringing to Kickstarter, at, that is literally live on Kickstarter at the moment, um, the co-designer of that, a friend of mine called Paul, uh, and I have formed a company to do that together. And the idea is that if we do successfully fund, he will do the laser cutting and um, some of the 
bits bagging and stuff like that uh, and I will do the crafting the boxes and the rule books and the ship dashboards and all those kinds of things yeah gotcha now have you looked into like looking i don't there's a company in the united states i don't know how how international they are called uline and they sell boxes they sell well they sell like millions of different packing materials and boxes boxes are one of the main things they sell have you looked into just buying boxes or as opposed to having to kind of make them yourself um so when i did it's alive um, so I made 300 copies of that and I sold all 300 within a year. Um, I got all the artwork printed onto paper, ready to glue onto the boxes myself with PVA, which was a spectacularly bad idea, as I may have mentioned before. Um, but the games were going faster than I could make them. Um, and so I found that there was a box maker in, uh, I think they were in London, um, and you just tell them the dimensions of the box and send them the artwork and they will send you back labeled boxes with your artwork stuck on. Um, so I ended up doing half of the boxes for that by hand and half of the boxes they did for me. Um, so in the event that something goes spectacularly well, I could do something like that again to speed things up. Yeah, that's really cool. Now, what is the cost difference? Try to remember that I mean, this, is, this is probably going back nine years now, maybe even 10 years. Um, I think it was something like the cardboard. So the print, I, I had the printed labels, so the printed labels were the same, whether I did them or they did them. Um, I think the cardboard cost something like 10 or 15 pence per game. And the a box for a game cost around a pound, a pound 20, something like that. Uh, so that's about $1.50, I think, US. Yeah. And so help me understand the, the difference. Like, are you saving that much money doing it yourself versus just hiring it out? Um, so I had in, so in, when I did both of those games, the, the aim was that I would be able to get the raw materials for the game for approximately half of the retail price. And the retail price would be a sensible retail price for a game of that type and size. Um, so it's alive, sold for £15. Um, and the raw materials cost me around £7.50. Now, for the copies that I got the boxes done for me, then it was about £9. Um, but that was still low enough that I was making a profit when I sold them for £15, although a chunk of them ended up being sold to um, shops. And obviously, those weren't sold at retail. They, the shop sold them at retail, and I sold them at a fraction of retail to the shop. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's another disadvantage. You know, the, the shop obviously has to make a, a profit on the, the game. And so you can't sell it to them and, and make very much money. And, and I guess normally in manufacturing, if you manufacture tra traditionally, you sell it to retailers for about half, right? So a $20 game, you sell it to them for about $10. And hopefully, you know, you make a, a little bit of money. But in your scenario, it's probably a little different. Yeah, so in, if you, a traditional, um, a traditional price thing, would you make it for... 20% uh, of retail, you'd sell it to a distributor for 40% of retail, the retailer would sell it to a shop at 50 to 60% of retail, and then the shop would sell it at 100% of retail. Um, my intention when um, I did the handcrafted games for Reba Games, and again for Zombology, is that I would sell direct to customers. So there would be no middlemen, there'd be no shops, there'd be no distributors, I would sell directly, which meant that I could have 
50% of retail be the manufacturing cost and still make money when I sell it at retail. Um, my stated aim when I started the company was that I would sell direct to retailers and I wouldn't use Kickstarter. So I'm now selling to retailers and going to Kickstarter. So that's working out quite well. <laughs> hey, you know, things change. That's the way it goes. At least this time I'm uh, I'm being a bit more reactive. So uh, I think <laughs> the, the first time round I, I made some bad choices and I stuck with them. Whereas this time I'm adapting on the fly as when I spot things, things original ideas aren't working for me. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool, man. Well, hey, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or final advice for somebody who's maybe listening to this and thinking, you know, I could I could handcraft my own games. I could make 100 copies and try to sell that as opposed to, you know, investing the money or maybe they don't have the desire to do Kickstarter. Maybe they don't really want to start a, a big company or something like that. They just want to do things for fun out of their home. What would you tell them? Go for it. Um, do it on a small scale. Get some idea of what you're getting into. I mean, it Presumably, if you're making, if you're designing a game, you've already done this a number of times. You've made a number of prototypes. Um, as you've designed the game, you've you've made a few. You've changed things. You've made some more. Um, maybe you've even sent some off for blind play testing with other people. Um, so you know what's involved in making a copy of your game. And if you enjoyed doing that, then I'd say go for it definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jackson, man, tell me about your Kickstarter. Uh, so we have a game on Kickstarter at the moment called Flick Fleet. It's a two-player space combat dexterity game. Um, the idea is that you're uh, an admiral of a small fleet of uh, laser-cut cr- laser acrylic spaceships and you're flicking them around the table into optimum firing position uh, and then you're placing a die on top of the ship and flicking it at your opponent's ship. If the die hits your opponent's ship, um, the die result is what damages the ship is done to the ship and the ships um, have dashboards that show you what systems they've got as they take damage those systems become inoperable and they can be repaired and uh, you can raise your shields again Um, it's a two-player it's like it's like the cross between star wars armada and flick em up and it's a lot of fun i can highly recommend it and i'm in no way biased (laughs) yeah yeah, that's a really good way to put it though Uh, armada and flick em up you know thrown together and this is what uh, would would come out of that scenario it's really cool it, it's a very interesting combat uh, or tactical combat game and uh yeah I, I hope it does really well for you on kickstarter thank you very much well man i really appreciate your time appreciate you coming on the show good luck with the kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now thank you very much and good luck with uh, final flick too when that gets back to kickstarter yeah, hopefully uh, here here in a few weeks. We have some things I've worked out and changed and, and doing things some uh, a little bit differently. And uh, so, yeah, as, as an, from one dexterity designer to another, uh, I hope yours does well and hope mine does well as well. And vice versa. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?